Hello, um, I'm Nancy Magnuson, Goucher College Librarian, and so pleased to welcome you to Goucher College and the latest in our biennial Alberta and Henry Burke Jane Austen Scholar-in-Residence Lecture Series. We're very proud of this program, named for the Burks, whose generosity allowed us to establish the endowment that supports the program, and to whom we are eternally grateful for the gift of the collection that inspired it and so many other endeavors at Goucher College. Alberta Burke's remarkable devotion to her favorite author and to her alma mater is deeply appreciated. This is our eighth residency since the program was inaugurated in 2000, uh, to, and it was inaugurated to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the receipt of the Burke Collection. Um, before I introduce tonight's speaker, I'd like to thank those who've worked on this residency. Uh, thanks first to the readers who helped select Kathleen Anderson from among the highly qualified scholars who applied, Tara Olivero, uh, Professor Juliet Wells, and Randy Kennedy. Randy also put all the logistics of the residency in place before she left her job here at Goucher in October. And then picking up for her were uh, Debbie Harner and Jacqueline Cast. And thanks to, to uh, curator of Special Collections and Archives, Tara Olivero, for overseeing the residency week. So while you're here, I hope you'll also visit our Emma in America exhibit. Uh, you probably walked past it if you didn't stop, do on the way out. And when you get home, please look at our emmainamerica.org website, which features a digital edition of our very rare first American edition of Emma. They and tonight's lecture are all part of our year-long celebration of the bicentennial of the publication of Emma. So our speaker tonight um, is a professor at Palm Beach Atlantic University, where it was much warmer than when she arrived Sunday night and has since braved snow, ice, sleet, rain, and all of it with... <laughs> <laughs> All of it with good cheer and a minimum of vapors. Um, she's taught at uh, Palm Beach Atlantic since 1996 as a member of the English department and also of the honors faculty. Her MA and PhD degrees are from the University of Iowa, and she is, has an undergraduate degree, magna cum laude, from Harvard University. She's the co-author of Jane Austen's Guide to Thrift, uh, published by Berkeley Books in 2013, and she has to her credit a very long list of scholarly and nonfiction articles and essays um, in journals such as Persuasions, the Jane Austen Journal, Persuasions Online, Women's Studies, an Interdisciplinary Journal, European Romantic Review, Victorian Poetry, Sensibilities, Renaissance, and others. Her nonfiction essays have appeared in such eclectic venues as the Huffington Post, the Chronicle of Higher Education, Christianity Today, Commonweal, Teen Magazine, and the collection Uprooted Childhoods, Memoirs of Growing Up Global. A scholarly study of Jane Austen's women is near completion. So her... Appealing to us here at Goucher College, her research and writing collaborations with students and alumni have resulted in co-authored publications in peer-reviewed scholarly journals. She's won a number of teaching and service awards, including her selection in 2007 as Palm Beach Atlantic's Professor of the Year, and she's a recipient of the Charles and Hazel Courts Award for Outstanding Teaching. 
Uh, Kathleen is an active member of the Jane Austen Society of North America, including two terms on the board of directors, and she's a frequent speaker at meetings of Jane Austen Societies and many other venues. We are so honored to have Kathleen Anderson here tonight. Please join me in welcoming her. Thank you so much. How's my projection? Can you hear me? Yes. Growing up, my mother always told me to enunciate. <laughs> Thank you all for coming out this evening as a testimony to your love and loyalty for Emma. Quick survey. When people come over to your home, how many of you offer them food and drink? Excellent. How many of you, either when staying with your family, in the case of students, or on your own, sometimes provide guests with a delicious homemade sit-down dinner? Almost everyone as well. Excellent. Okay, now we come to the point. Out of the dinner hosting group, how many of you provide this sumptuous meal and then deliberately leave your guests alone with a parent who has a thing for not letting people eat anything but the rolls and some overcooked apples while you go off to a party somewhere else? Anyone? I'm glad most of you resist such cruelty. Jane Austen's Emma Woodhouse does this to women of inferior means and status, exploiting them as babysitters while she goes off to hold court at livelier dinners and dances. Emma's core problem is that she suppresses her true vocation for a misdirected one, a choice that Austen consistently portrays as distorting to one's character and thus to one's relationships with others. Emma is a feeder by nature by contrast to her food-phobic father, who endeavors to withhold or withdraw tasty dishes from others out of misplaced concern for their health. Where Mr. Woodhouse is inhospitably rations or takes away, his daughter confidently gives, applying her spiritual intelligence to the practical and emotional support of others. Toward the disadvantaged, the narrator of Emma tells us, she was very compassionate and the distresses of the poor were as sure of relief from her personal attention and kindness, her counsel and patience, as from her purse. She understood their ways, had no romantic expectations of extraordinary virtue from those for whom education had done so little, entered into their troubles with ready sympathy, and always gave her assistance with as much intelligence as goodwill. Emma's pragmatism and largesse toward the underprivileged reveal her gift for an intuitive hospitality through which she meets people where she finds them and gives them what they need. Unfortunately, however, Emma undervalues and neglects her talents and virtues in the misguided pursuit of the role she covets instead, that of a sage educator. Thereby, she victimizes her adopted protege, Harriet Smith, as well as several others in the quest for this transcendence. Austin celebrates the spiritual and social significance of female hospitality through her depiction of Emma's own education in her calling to be a benevolent banquet host in the style of a medieval queen. The novel Emma contains a variety of feudal references, including most obviously the name Mr. Knightley for the chivalrous hero Emma chooses. He lives at a former abbey whose original design he preserves. He travels on horseback instead of by carriage, performs gallant deeds for women, and behaves honorably except in the one case of his jealousy of his rival for the lady's favor, Frank Churchill. 
In addition, Emma faces three rivals for her queenship of Highbury. Mrs. Elton, Jane Fairfax, for whom Frank will have family jewels set in an ornament for the head, which suggests a crown, and briefly Harriet Smith, when Emma imagines her as a rival for Mr. Knightley. Sandy Byrne points to the two women's handshake and Harriet's humble kiss of Emma's hand, claiming that there is, quote, a touch of, fe- of the feudal act of fealty, unquote, in Emma's exchange of feasting and social elevation for Harriet's loyal servitude. Some brief background on the medieval European queen. She possessed significant wealth and influence, particularly through her roles as wife, mother, diplomat, advisor, and patroness. She was expected to produce sons and preserve dynasty. As the narrator suggests, Emma does when she marries Mr. Knightley and provides an heir for Donwell. As a patroness, a queen had a significant religious and spiritual role in her kingdom as well as in her household, supporting churches, monastic communities, and charitable work. The word lady stems from the Anglo-Saxon word hlafdig. Isn't that wonderful? (laughs) Incorporate that into a sentence this evening. For example, how is your hlafdig? (laughs) This actually means loaf giver, which reflects the importance of food distribution as an integral part of upper-class women's contributions to medieval society, in addition to their ceremonial presentation of the mead cup to guests in the formal banquet table. Moreover, as historians such as Carolyn Walker Bynum observe based on records of medieval saints, quote, female spirituality was strongly linked to food practices, unquote. This applies in important ways to the character and growth of Austin's heroine, Emma Woodhouse. In the remainder of my talk today, I'm going to explore how Austin incorporates Eucharistic imagery to illustrate Emma's development from transgression to fulfillment of the proper role of a medieval queen who employs her power to nurture community. Of all of Austen's heroines, Emma is the one we can best picture sporting a crown. But she must learn how to wear it as a feast maker who imitates the bounty of Christ's redemptive gift of self by enacting the, spiritual, the sacrificial spirit of genuine service to others. She begins her journey of personal growth, possessing tremendous mental and physical energy and generosity, but she lacks the inwardness and discernment to direct them appropriately. Until her reform, she holds herself above the total sacramental self-giving of the host with a capital H. Austin portrays hospitable women with affectionate approval in the likes of Sense and Sensibility's archetypal nurturing matriarch Mrs. Jennings and Persuasion's Mrs. Harville and Mrs. Musgrove. Emma's unexpected role model, as well as the catalyst for her spiritual awakening, which is essential to her realization of her vocation, is Miss Bates, the quintessential purveyor of goodwill. Throughout Emma's life, Miss Bates and her mother have demonstrated the true hospitality of complete self-giving as epitomized in Miss Bates' simple gesture of offering Emma and Harriet cake. And here I'll refer you to the handout if you care to follow along the stages of Emma's development. Mrs. and Miss Bates occupied the drawing room floor, and there, in the very moderate-sized apartment, the visitors were most cordially and even gratefully welcomed. The quiet, neat old lady who, with her knitting, was seated in the warmest corner, wanting even to give up her place to Miss Woodhouse, and her more talkative, more active talking daughter, almost ready to overpower them with care and kindness, thanks for their visit, solicitude for their shoes, anxious inquiries after Mr. Woodhouse's health, cheerful communications about her mother's, and sweet cake from the buffet. 
Mrs. Cole had just been there and had been so good as to sit an hour with them, and she had taken a piece of cake, and been so kind as to say she liked it very much, and therefore she hoped Miss Woodhouse and Miss Smith would do them the favor to eat a piece, too. The Bates women's sacrificial gestures of welcome in this scene, their gifts of warmth, comfort, attentiveness, gratitude, sensitivity, nurturance, and generosity, are punctuated and emblematized by the sweet cake. This feminine Eucharistic offering signifies and foreshadows Emma's ultimate desire to participate in genuine communion with other women, regardless of their class or personality type. While the narrator does not specifically state that Emma and Harriet accept the cake, it's clear that they do not refuse it, since that response inevitably would have resulted in another speech on the subject by a concerned Miss Bates. The text implies that though at different times, most of the women in this small social circle circle take and eat from the same cake. Yet Emma's sacrilege in this scene is that all of her polite forms, including her implied acceptance of the proffered cake, are hollow. She makes this rare visit to the Bateses to distract herself and Harriet from her guilt over the Harriet-Mr. Elton matchmaking debacle, and she spends the visit hoping to avoid Miss Bates' greater pleasure, greatest pleasure in it, the sharing of a letter from Jane Fairfax. In fact, at this point in the novel, Emma inwardly disdains Miss Bates, Harriet Smith, Jane Fairfax, and Mrs. Cole, considering them inferior, and therefore she does not enter into real communion with them as yet. Miss Bates extends to Emma what she needs, more sweetness, as succeeding events show. More importantly, she extends the a priori forgiveness and unconditional love that mirror Christ's redemptive sacrifice as reenacted in the Eucharist and consumption of the host. Like Christ, Emma's best but most disregarded living spiritual mentor offers the cake, the sweetened bread, without the egotism of self-congratulatory fanfare. In a miraculous gesture of mysterious grace in which the small becomes large beyond measure, the host offers the guests everything. Emma seems to take Miss Bates's lesson to heart and to imitate her mentor's munificence, remarking to Mr. Knightley, who has just complimented her attention to Jane Fairfax, I hope I am not often deficient in what is due to guests at Hartfield. To which her fussy father responds, If anything, you are too attentive. The muffin last night. If it had been handed round once, I think it would have been enough. Mr. Woodhouse's allusion to Emma's handing round of the muffin, note the inclusive singular, compares her hospitality to the dissemination of the host, further reinforcing the spiritual significance of her vocation as banquet host. Although Mr. Woodhouse then expresses compassionate interest in the Bateses and the wish to help them, he hesitates to send them a loin or leg of pork that is very small and delicate, out of concern as to whether it will be prepared as he thinks proper. Emma responds, my dear papa, I sent the whole hind quarter. I knew you would wish it. There will be the leg to be salted, you know, which is so very nice, and the loin to be dressed directly in any manner they like. She acts on her own generous instincts beneath the guise of serving as her father's proxy, and subtly reminds him of the recipient's free will to prepare their food as they choose. Likewise, when Mrs. Bates and Mrs. Goddard babysit Mr. Woodhouse the night of the Coles dinner party, and this is the next quote on your handout, 
Her last pleasing duty before she left the house was to pay her respects to them as they sat together after dinner, and while her father was fondly noticing the beauty of her dress, to make the two ladies all the amends in her power by helping them to large slices of cake and full glasses of wine, for whatever unwilling self-denial his care of their constitution might have obliged them to practice during the meal. She had provided a plentiful dinner for them. She wished she could know that they had been allowed to eat it. Counteracting her father's rationing, Emma serves her guests large pieces of cake and full glasses of wine in a compensatory Eucharistic action that indicates her general desire for the completeness of the gift and its recipient. His fearful clinging to life through denying himself and others its richness serves as a foil for her life-affirming celebration and sharing of bounty. Emma finds joy in feeding others, as if drawing from an inherited female monastic tradition in which holy women are closely associated with Eucharistic imagery. Historians such as Carolyn Walker Bynum have pointed out, quote, the iconographic association of female saints with the Eucharist, unquote, evident in English northern cloister churches. And Roberta Gilchrist states that, quote, nuns were occasionally recorded as acting as sacristans, unquote, and, quote, the relatively frequent occurrence at nunneries of grave slabs showing chalices may refer to female sacristans or chaplains rather than to male priests, unquote. In addition, the fact that, according to Gilchrist, only the few very wealthy nunneries received quantities of wine and spices proportional to those recorded for male monasteries, This underscores the implied extravagance of Emma's gesture toward her female guests, who were themselves likely too poor to afford wine. However, note that before Emma's reform, she is nonetheless willing to risk the other women's inevitable disappointment for her own pleasure in being the guest of honor somewhere else. She she is actually still in the house, while aware that her father, an early diner, likely deprives their guests of the plentiful dinner she had ordered. At the very time during which Emma is being dressed in finery and having her hair styled to accentuate her social supremacy at the Coles party, Mrs. Bates and Mrs. Goddard sit downstairs at her father's table, being reminded of their insignificance through his probable usurpation of whatever portion of their meal he finds most terrifying. Most likely, the substantial and tastiest dish. In light of Mr. Woodhouse's compassionate tyranny, Emma's provision of cake and wine at the meal's end partially functions as merely a compensatory gesture for her to save face socially. She has an inborn affinity for hosting, but does not actualize the iconoclastic significance of her function because she lacks the proper spirit of devotion to her guests. She often suppresses or abandons rather than develops her true vocation. Emma's ego demands the obviously superior status of knowing instructor, And when not supposedly enlightening Harriet, she must occupy the starring role center stage by running off to be the guest of honor at the Coles party, a party she almost skipped because they were too below her in the social scale. The narrator exposes her self-congratulatory reflections afterward. She must have delighted the Coles, worthy people who deserve to be made happy, and left a name behind her that would not soon die away. She clearly eschews the servant role, preferring to be first rather than last, because she relishes, quote, the splendor of popularity, unquote. Now I'd like to warn you, my next interpretation is pretty crazy. Shall I proceed? (laughs) 
Can you handle it? Okay, for this part, we'll be looking at the gingerbread as nothing quote. Although Emma neglects her duty, she feels an inexplicable magnetic pull toward reminders of it. On a cursory glance out the door of Ford's on a shopping trip with Harriet, her gaze is naturally drawn to images suggestive of future feasting. This vignette suggests three levels of signification, the simplest of which is that Emma's gaze captures the representative stages of a meal, the meat entree, the basket of accoutrements, the bone left over when the feast is completed, and the dessert. Thus she views... Quote, when her eyes fell only on the butcher with his tray, a tidy old woman traveling homewards from shop with her full basket, two curs quarreling over a dirty bone, and a string of dawdling children round the baker's little bow window eyeing the gingerbread, she knew she had no reason to complain, and was amused enough, quite still, to stand at the door. A mind lively and at ease can do with seeing nothing, and can see nothing that does not answer, unquote. In a more nuanced reading of this scene, Emma observes the stages of human life in symbolic parade. And you can tell me if I'm going too far on this. <laughs> Mature adulthood sustained by and providing butcher's meat. Old age with its harvesting of the last fruits of a well-lived life. Death and the return to the soil as signified by the dirty bone and rebirth through the next generation. Simultaneously, and even more significantly, Emma witnesses a Christological parallel here to the blood sacrifice of the crucifixion. The miracle of the multiplying loaves and fishes gathered into baskets and disseminated through the ages of believers. The now irrelevant bone of a post-resurrection mortality. I realize I'm pushing it a little bit. And the children of each succeeding generation, hungering for the bread of life which they are not yet ready to receive, sacramental gingerbread made in the human image with which they identify. Emma may also see a vision of her own future children, or simply of the next generation. In either case, they hunger for the incarnational gingerbread, whose sweetness also suggests a feminine expression of the host, connotative of the spiritual sisterhood they are encouraged to cherish and preserve to attain full communion with themselves and others. Emma's amusement at this prophetic scene of anticipated feasting may reflect her subconscious gratitude for both food for thought and the literal and spiritual food others have provided her. But she has not yet fully ingested these gifts. She takes them for granted as the sight of nothing. And she assumes too much the role of entitled patroness toward others. Although the parallel images of Harriet's admiring gaze over the merchandise at Ford's shop and the children's longing for the gingerbread behind the window should remind Emma of her call to supply others with the beauty and sweetness of communion for which they yearn, she treats their yearnings with cool detachment as trivial, refusing sympathetic identification with their needs. This hubris will lead her to publicly insult Miss Bates instead of affirming the value of her vocational mentor of hospitality as if to punish her role model for the magnanimity Emma herself fails to achieve. Ms. Bates perceives and affirms the bountiful hostess in Emma while hinting at her need for more self-involvement, telling her niece Jane Fairfax of her mother's inadequate dinner experience with Mr. Woodhouse during the Weston's ball at the Crown in a voice loud enough for Emma to hear. And this is the next passage. 
I was telling you of your grandmama, Jane. There was a little disappointment. The baked apples and biscuits, excellent in their way, you know, but there was a delicate fricassee of sweetbread and some asparagus brought in at first. And good Mr. Woodhouse, not thinking the asparagus quite boiled enough, sent it all out again. Now, there is nothing Grandmama loves better than sweetbread and asparagus, so she was rather disappointed. But we agreed we would not speak of it to anybody for fear of its getting round to dear Miss Woodhouse, who would be so very much concerned. As the lady of the house, Emma had planned this meal, like the others designed for the delectation of her guests, but she was not there to supervise it. Miss Bates knows that Emma knows her direct oversight would have guaranteed her mother's enjoyment of the liberal repast that Mr. Woodhouse, of course, snatches away. Significantly, Miss Bates sets up and reinforces the above-quoted audible questioning of Emma's royal dedication by temporarily dethroning her in favor of Mrs. Elton. Just a few remarks before describing Mr. Woodhouse's usurpation of her mother's favorite foods, as if to explain her demotion of Emma, Miss Bates designates Mrs. Elton the Queen of Highbury instead of the neglectful host, Emma. She says, Stop, stop. Let us stand back a little. Mrs. Elton is going. Dear Mrs. Elton, how elegant she looks. Beautiful lace. Now we all follow in her train, quite the queen of the evening. Mrs. Elton's superficial queenliness depends entirely on her ostentatious dress and vulgar insistence on precedence over others, which suggests her function as only a slightly magnified emblem of Emma's own preoccupation with self social self-glorification before her spiritual awakening. Emma is capable of enriching other women's lives with richer, more dramatically transformed foods than the mundane apples that her father allows Mrs. Bates to eat, of which the Bateses have already received an ample supply from Mr. Knightley and served to guests, including Emma herself. Judging from the textual evidence, they've already received two full bags of apples from Mr. Knightley. To explain the delicate fricassee of sweetbread that Emma ordered and her father usurped from Mrs. Bates, sweetbread refers to lamb or calf organs that are served in a fricassee or rich creamy sauce. Although Emma tries to promote her guests' gustatory enjoyment, the absentee lady of the house can guarantee only their present pleasure in whatever she serves herself. As in the case of the repeatedly circulated muffins, the ample dessert portions, and the filled goblets of wine. What Emma distributes, her father does not prevent the guests from receiving. This reinforces the notion that the service is as important as the food itself. Emma grasps the material substance of the feast's elements, but not their more significant sacramental dimension, thus indirectly participating with her father in obstructing the transubstantiation of the gifts. The lamb organs are removed, and the bread and wine do not fulfill their Eucharistic purpose when some of the offerings are forever presented and taken away, unconsumed from the table. Christ does not arrive. The Passover remains unfulfilled. Emma overemphasizes the forms, revealing a prideful, shallow hospitality toward women she looks down upon but occasionally finds useful as babysitters. She must infuse a sacrificial spirit into her hosting in order to provide a real banquet that fills and fulfills others. 
Miss Bates's retelling of her mother's complaint reinforces that Emma is not fully present to other women and takes away from their feast by refusing communion with them. Emma's degeneration from her calling reaches its nadir, of course, at the picnic at Box Hill, where she plays queen of the mountain while contributing only a partial share in the provision of sustenance, but nearly all of the social conflict, the extreme opposite to a beneficent host or loaf giver. After her cruel affront to Miss Bates, that's the famous insult about you can only think of three foolish things to say, she feels an unformulated but acute regret at having participated in, quote, the very questionable enjoy enjoyments of this day of pleasure, unquote. I think the narrator captures a psychologically nuanced and relatable sense of Emma's gnawing conscience. She feels an increasingly urgent desire to escape the scene of her misbehavior, and she projects the blame for her discombobulation onto the group. And the narrator shares her thoughts. Such another scheme composed of so many ill-assorted people she hoped never to be betrayed into again. This flawed but maturing heroine already feels guilty before Mr. Knightley's intervention. We should not credit him for originating the feeling of guilt in her, though this is the common interpretation. He does not mold but only forces her to confront her suppressed but already uncomfortable conscience. Emma's shocked recognition of the ugly core behind her Lady Bountiful act reflects her awakening to comprehension of the cause of her nervous discomfort, her lack of the proper spirit. Penitence leads to an immediate resolution of reform. Miss Bates should never again, no, never. If attention in future could do away the past, she might hope to be forgiven. She had been often remiss. Her conscience told her so. Remiss perhaps more in thought than fact. I would disagree with that. Scornful, ungracious, but it should be so no more. In the warmth of true contrition, she would call upon her the very next morning, and it should be the beginning on her side of a regular, equal, kindly intercourse. This represents the climactic moment in Emma's development. She realizes that the spirit behind her actions is as important as the gestures themselves, and that service to others must be practiced authentically and consistently as a privilege. She finally internalizes and inhabits the role of hospitable host who views others as friends rather than charity cases, because, as Peter Smith articulates it, unlikely mentor Miss Bates, quote, succeeds in stirring Emma's imagination and therefore transforming her life, unquote, by enabling her, quote, to join in fellowship with her exact contrary, unquote. Emma makes the transition here from a preoccupation with the literal provision of food in an elegant dinner setting that exalts her own social image to the heartfelt provision of interest, emotional support, and love from a place of humility and mutuality. The day after denigrating Miss Bates and experiencing a consequential climax of self-dissatisfaction, Emma views visiting her friend as an honor. She enters the Bates home for the very first time with the active, quote, wish of giving pleasure, unquote, rather than assuming she is, quote, conferring obligation, unquote, seeking admittance into another's space outside of her queendom as if a humble communicant. Emma gains a sense of balance, fulfillment, and joy when she recognizes and selflessly embraces her genuine, usual self in her vocation as, quote, the attentive lady of the house, unquote. 
She humbly discerns that her guests feed her and shows her teachability in learning and applying Miss Bates's wisdom in wholehearted giving. After facing her suppressed awareness that she has never appreciated her female friends of longest standing, she gives them the food of friendship, gratitude, attention, affection, her full presence. Just as she offers cake and wine whose ingredients have been transformed into something superior to their original form, like the Eucharistic bread and wine, she transforms from royal to servant, replacing her emphasis on the externals of the feast with an emphasis on its essence, the gift of herself. She learns to be a woodhouse, to house the wood of the cross within, who comprehends and exemplifies real sacrificiality. Emma Woodhouse is called to be a gracious queen in the Anglo-Saxon Christian tradition of the provisioner of the cup. The twist is that she must present the cup to women rather than the men of her table, as was originally the custom, in loyalty to the sisterhood that helped her to realize her vocation. Emma's hurtful mockery of Miss Bates ironically draws her attention back to where it should be and ultimately motivates her to follow in Miss Bates's footsteps and hone her talent for hospitality with a conscious effort and zeal that she has never before exercised. She acquires the humility to fulfill her calling to serve the feast. Although realist Jane Austen suggests a hint of tragedy or at least marked frustration in the cramping of female intelligence into the few channels available to women of her time and place, her heroines are never off the hook. No form of oppression justifies their evasion of moral responsibility. They must make a committed study of the personal development essential to maximize their gifts to the benefit of other women and thus of society as a whole. Through consciously embracing and striving to perfect their available vocations in a sacrificial spirit, they enact the sacramental significance of these roles. As we repeatedly see reinforced in Austen's novels, women of diverse temperaments and giftedness can and do fulfill powerfully effective vocations in their distinctive ways. Key to this phenomenon is their sincere desire to learn from other women how best to combine the essential contemplative and active dimensions of medieval religious life in their own particular vocations. Emma ultimately enacts her social authority with more thoughtful intentionality, helping to build a stronger community of women who reinforce each other in individual and societal good. Emma's reconciliation with Miss Bates facilitates her reconciliation with Jane Fairfax, who apologizes in kind, and her greater mutuality and intimacy with all the women in her circle. Austen's best heroines bring others to the banquet. Elizabeth Darcy and Jane Bingley adopt Kitty Bennett and Georgiana Darcy, as Eleanor Tilney mentors Catherine Moreland and Anne Elliot cheers Mary and befriends the Musgrove girls. Mrs. Jennings mothers the Dashwood sisters as Eleanor Dashwood mothers her own mother and sisters. Women's authentic use of their spiritual gifts results in a beautiful coherence that inspires other women's like recognition and cultivation of their own gifts. Truth to self is truth to other women, which explains why Austen's heroines cannot marry until they have first reconciled with their biological or social sisters. Emma's critical error was prioritizing her relationship with what Devoni Lucer calls, quote, her paternalistic hero, unquote, over her friendship with Miss Bates. Spiritual sisterhood inspires individual women to realize the best of what they can be for others, and thus brings them closer to the bread and wine, the redemptive glory of God. Emma's and Miss Bates' mutual offering and acceptance of the sacramental sweet cake 
signifies their true communion. In Austen's novels, as in medieval women's monastic life, such gifts as spiritual counsel, education, hospitality, charity, healing, and the modeling of virtue produce a ripple effect of benefits that contribute to society's unity in the body of Christ. A petty queen who uses her power and undermines her majesty on social machinations and gossip is ugly. Benevolence makes for true beauty and inspires the appropriate application of earthly powers. I would suggest that many women still manifest the gift of hospitality in ways that may be ignored or undervalued, but that nonetheless participate in a historical tradition that helps to sustain and unify society in ways well beyond what we may have considered. Jane Austen clearly understood this, and her beloved Emma eventually did so too. Thank you. And let me just point out quickly here that the, uh, the quote on the back of the handout is from Beowulf and shows you another example of the tradition of presenting the cup at table, uh, which also you know, comes out of the Anglo-Saxon tradition. Yes. Excellent. I would, I would definitely say the whole historical trajectory of English queens contributes. And you can kind of see, depending on the situation, some queens, like Elizabeth I, you know, remained single or were widows. And they had particular powers based on either, uh, in some cases, taking um, a vow of celibacy. Uh, and in at least one case, there was a, a European nun who was a queen. And in other cases, um, so in Elizabeth's case, she relies upon her virginal status, her kind of Marian associations, and the idea that she's married to England um, to kind of assuage the people's fears or concerns about her potential marriage and what that could do to alliances with different countries. Or, you know, I think she used her virginal singlehood as a powerful statement. Other women used more indirect powers by being the regent for a very young heir to the throne. And in that case, the dynamic was a little different. Occasionally, women did rule in their own right, like Elizabeth. Um, some of them, actually, in at least one case, uh, she was suspect in Italy, she was suspected to have murdered her husband. Uh, so there were a lot of strange different scenarios that you could end up dealing with. But in many cases, they ruled for a number of years as regents because the heir was either too young or there were disputes. And sometimes, 
you know, in the ranking of criteria for the monarchy, being uh, closer in lineage to the original king of a country would sometimes bump you ahead of someone, say, a male who's a more distant relation or in poor health or mentally unstable and things like that. So, you know, there were a lot of different circumstances that could affect how a woman ended up with power and influence politically. Um, but most of them were the consorts of the king, and they had an advisory function that was socially expected. So, you know, it wasn't kind of the Nancy Reagan effect, if you will. <laughs> it was expected that they would be peacemakers, that they might be from a different uh, family or community that would then um, help to smooth out warring factions or, you know, to bridge cultures and things like that. So, uh, yeah, I think Austin uh, had some sympathy for Mary, Queen of Scots, even if humorously. Um, there are hints of interest there in her letters. Uh, and, um, you know, Elizabeth is certainly known for having been a very powerful queen. And so I think that whole history of the monarchical tradition is a part of who Emma is. I think, you know, Austin had a, has a certain nostalgic feel to her work where history and tradition are involved, both in terms of the landscape and in terms of relationships and values. You know, I think she, she sees the importance of preserving that connectedness to the past. How many of you want cake now? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I didn't think ahead about that. <laughs> Wine probably wouldn't be appropriate uh, on the campus setting. Possibly. <laughs> Julia? I'm just wondering if you had given versions of this chapter, any of your other chapters, to audiences of contemporary Americans who might not be Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, I haven't. This is a new field for me, a new direction. The more I thought about the cake and wine and the differences between Emma and her father, the more I started to be pulled towards the topic. But that's interesting, you know, different, depending on your background, you would probably react to this material differently, especially depending on whether or not you have some background in Christian thought, history, imagery, and those kinds of things that might affect you differently. So could you say a few words about how your work with the Burke Collection this week is going to um, fit in with, with your future work? Sure. I'm, I'm getting increasingly interested in uh, Austin as a kind of environmentalist and the way she discusses landscape design and nature imagery and sets up affinities between different heroines and different nature elements. And so uh, I'm brainstorming some kind of absurd ideas about Marianne Dashwood as the twirling dying leaf you know, and Anne Elliot's The Sea and things like this. Uh, so one of the reasons I've been excited to look at the research here is to see in the culture as a whole in Humphrey Repton's 
landscape design red books and in some of the magazines and fashion papers of the period, what are the female associations with nature that come through in different kinds of documents of the period. And that's been very interesting because, you know, the neoclassical is this kind of um, artificial naturalness that comes through. And you see on the furniture drawings and the fashion papers, you know, these flowy robes that are supposed to look Grecian and, you know, sort of etchings of laurels and things. But it, all the furniture looks very uncomfortable. <laughs> Actually, the clothing looks kind of uncomfortable, too. And then you have, uh, you know, a mother and child uh, displaying fashions on a bench and looking very drapey, but their postures look really uncomfortable and they don't look like real people and their cheeks are super rosy. And so uh, just in looking at all these different images and reading some some essays about, uh, you know, the beauty of a new actress at Covent Garden and things like that. It's been interesting to pull all different kinds of cultural references together and look at the relationship between the natural and the artificial in Austin's culture as a whole and what that might imply about attitudes toward women. So that's what sent me on this journey, and it's been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed it. The thrill of opening old books, the smell, the sight, it's been great. Yes. I'm interested in the trajectory of your, of your interest in Austin, wondering whether this is something that you started thinking about after you finished your PhD, or whether you had opportunities as a graduate student to work with Austin. Yeah, this was, I, I discovered Austin's merit a little late in my career, unfortunately. <laughs> I, I was a Victorianist originally, and my dissertation was on the trope of the actress in uh, 19th century British women's actress memoirs and novels featuring actresses. So I started out a lot more interested in women and drama in the 19th century. And uh, after a while, I realized I, I wasn't as interested as I had been before the vicissitudes of graduate school. And, uh, you know, I had gone through a Dickens phase in college. I'd gone through a Flannery O'Connor phase. I'd gone through a George Eliot phase. And, and that was a factor. I got a little tired of being depressed. <laughs> <laughs> and there is something appealing about the predictable order and restoration of a Jane Austen novel, by the end, you feel confident that the good will be rewarded, that the heroine will get what she wants, and I was ready for that. So, you know, I think as I've grown older, I've been more eager to study redemption than um, dark disappointment and despair. Yes. Yeah, uh, I was just thinking of something as someone who is Jewish and not very well versed in some of the uh, Christian values that it has always surprised me actually that there hasn't been uh, more study, unless there has been and I don't know of it, 
of Christian virtues and values in all of the other novels. And um, I'm going to put forth a theory that I have about which of Jane Austen's um, heroines most resembles her. And I believe that it's Fanny uh, in Mansfield Park, who is the most humble, the most giving, the most even-tempered of all of her heroines. And if you watch as she herself got older, that uh, it somehow was no longer so important to be sprightly and clever and witty. That was not so important anymore as she herself got older. I think you have a whole field open to you <laughs> in um, looking at the whole issue of kind of hidden, hidden Christian uh, values in, in her other, other novels in view of her own background as the daughter of uh, a reverend um, that she that maybe she, maybe she either felt so turtle, totally enveloped with it that she didn't have to bring it forward, or, or maybe there's more and it's hidden, um, just as you brought this out here um, in Emma. You know, I think uh, in the course of her novels, of course, there have been a lot of studies on how her artistic development patterns itself and how one novel is a response to the previous. So if you look at it in those convert sort of dialogic terms, then, you know, in a way, Emma and Mansfield Park are in contrast to each other. You know, here we have a wealthy, vivacious, bored woman who meddles and is outgoing and quirky and, and, and annoying and difficult. And then you have the very shy, reserved, poor, dependent, you know, uh, helpless, um, tenaciously, consistently righteous woman, neck, you know, you know, side by side. And I think that is really interesting to look at her work and see how, as an artist, too, she insists on experimenting and, you know, trying different narrative um, plots and different types of heroines and, you know, really gives us the richness of that. I also think um, what you're saying sort of inspires me to think about how she values gracious endurance of difficulties. And I see that in particularly older generations around me. There's a kind of resilient acceptance, pragmatism, no-nonsense, I need to be a strong person kind of attitude. And, you know, some people have said to me that, well, what else should I do? You know, life was hard when I was growing up. You just did what you needed to do. And whining was not acceptable. You know, that kind of value system. And I think of Elizabeth, she is tested. In the end, she gets everything she wants. But in Anne Elliot's case, in persuasion, she gets tested for a long time, and it's super gut-wrenching. And when she does finally get the man she loves, we're holding our breath to the very end. And yet she never loses her graciousness. She never has a Miss Bates insult moment. 
And although we get to see glimpses of her interior thoughts that show she's human too, and that she recognizes the absurdities around her, she never voices them. So I guess the point of this ramble is that there's, you know, there's a, a real upholding of the integrity of a person who has the strength and the principle never to cross that line, uh, to take that bottled up rage and bitterness and hurl it at someone too helpless to defend herself against it. You know, I would like to be that person. You know, and so for me, reading Austin is a challenge always, you know, to strive after that ideal. And that's kind of part of what I'm seeing in the images and in the things I'm studying is this, these ideals, these images that are someone's idea of what perfection should look like, even if it's not always what I would imagine. And so on and so forth. <laughs> I did. And it just brought me to tears because it, it gave me this insight into Emma in terms of how, why she, in some ways, why she does what she does because she's dealing with this father who is on the road to Alzheimer's. And I wondered if you, since you read, you must have some reaction. I do. I was fascinated by that uh, story. And uh, this is a woman who, my understanding is, she's working on a book about um, how reading Emma um, fed her and gave her insight uh, on care of her, was it her mother or her father, uh, who had Alzheimer's and she was taking care of the parent and trying to understand and navigate this very difficult situation. And I do think we, we understand a lot about Emma when we look at Mr. Woodhouse. And, uh, you know, some of his behaviors, um, like uh, trying to find ways to distract him out of the track of thought that leads to panic and repetition and, and the loss of the sense of, of choices and possibilities, those kind of mental traps that he gets caught in and how does she react to those moments. That was fascinating. It sounds like it'll be a great book. Uh, but certainly I think, you know, a lot of scholars acknowledge that she is, you know, she's this very talented and smart young woman who's trapped. She's hardly traveled at all, and she, you know, her honeymoon's the first time she goes to the sea, and it's not that far away from Highbury. And, uh, you know, she has to always, I mean, I'm pretty hard on her about using these lower status women as babysitters, but she is always responsible for him. She was. She is always tied to him, and you know she doesn't plan to marry Mister Knightley if she thinks it involves any major change for her father or moving out of the house. So I do think that she's dedicated her life to him in some way. You know, to turn around and contradict everything I've just said, uh, <laughs> you know, she really, in that one way shows that core of goodness that makes it possible for us to believe in her reform because she is absolutely committed to her father. 
So in that respect, she knows what sacrifice is, but she hasn't found a way to, you know, maintain that, that same level of commitment to everyone. And I think Miss Bates, you know, is difficult and Mr. Woodhouse is difficult and they're both overwhelming people in different ways. And, you know, maybe she has reached her breaking point, needs to take a few more walks in the shrubbery in between his monologues about gruel and about watering down the wine and removing any potentially dangerous wedding cake and so forth. Other questions? She asked uh, how how I ended up at the University of Iowa. Uh, well, the the simple answer is they were the only graduate program that offered me money, and I didn't have money. <laughs> but uh, but also I'm from the Midwest, and you know my family was there at the time, and uh, I was going to have a research or a teaching assistantship, so I was going to have the opportunity to teach, which I really wanted to do. And um, there was a Victorianist there that I was interested in working with. So that's basically how it happened. Although, you know, I made the mistake of not knowing what I wanted in a convenient time frame. And so I was originally thinking in terms of creative writing, and I had applied to some MFA programs. And then at the last minute, when many deadlines had already passed, I thought, well, I don't know if I'm any good as a writer. Am I crazy? What happens if I can't publish anything? How am I going to survive? And I started panicking and thinking, well, I like literature too. Why am I not applying to PhD programs? What's going on here? So I quickly threw some in the mail, and that's sort of how it happened. And then at that point, I, I got into a couple of MFA programs, and I just was at a crossroads there. So at that point, I took a year off. I had various strange adventures. Uh, involving being a big sister at a group home for troubled teenagers and um, discovering I was a failure as a social worker. <laughs> and at that point, uh, I had deferred for a year at the University of Iowa. No, I didn't apply there. I, at that point, I was thinking, I, I want to look at PhD programs. So, yeah, and they had a one-year deferral option, so I took that. Any other questions? Out of curiosity, how many of you in here see yourself as Emma-like? <laughs> no one. Interesting. Maybe a little. <laughs> no matchmakers in here? Right. And you're more gracious feast makers, so you're not going to say you're an inadequate feast maker. Well, that's good. <laughs> Thank you very much. And we do have copies. We have some copies of Kathleen's books for sale, book for sale, and I bet you would sign them. Sure. Okay. So. I should also take an opportunity to thank Goucher College. This has been a wonderful experience for me, and everyone's been really nice and helpful, and I've really appreciated the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you.